Thank you so much for having us today. I never take it for granted to be behind somebody else's pulpit. I don't even take it for granted in my own church. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to open up the word of God to you guys. So thank you for that. And we bring love and greetings from the Rock Church. They've been praying for you this week. And I specifically asked our prayer team if they would pray for you to see if they would get any words for you. So I just wanted to encourage you with a few things before we get into what I want to bring today. And this is what I had for you. It says, to RBC, God says this, I will bring my plans to pass and the longings for this church will be fulfilled. Don't look to the structure and with natural eyes saying it's inferior. Look to me and my wisdom and say that you do all things well. Even now, I'm preparing the next steps of your journey and I am building you into a house of glory. And I just want to say some of the things that we've heard this morning about what you are doing for your community and abroad. It is absolutely brilliant. And God is just so pleased with you. You're so faithful as a people and you will be rewarded for it. And I, want, I felt to say to you, Mark, do not grow weary in, in doing good. For at the right time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. I believe your harvest is coming. I really do. And the leader of our women's ministry, our rock chicks, had this to say. I saw a picture of light streaming through the windows of the church with an intensity never seen before. I believe it's the light of Christ. The job of the congregation is to embrace it. Embrace Christ in all his fullness and be his light in the world. Its power will be intense and it will take great effort to adjust to. But if they commit to unity, it is something they will, they will and only will adapt to together. And then the head of our evangelism team had this. I had a picture of a hand being placed on top of another hand, and so on and so on. And I felt that it was saying he, that God was pleased with the unity between the congregation, but also between the unity between you guys and other churches. And as we know, Psalm 33:1 says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And I love those two encouragement because when Mark and I were in correspondence, he mentioned that one of the words that you're on with this year is unity. He's, he's spoken about it this morning and the two people that came forward with words had exactly the same thing to say. So he's on your case. He is speaking to you and you are clearly doing a lot of stuff right. So I just hope you're encouraged by that this morning. But you're camped in Philippians, and I'm not going to sway away from that. So if you have your Bibles, you can either turn to it again, or I'm just going to repeat what Julian's already brought us from Philippians 4, 4 to 7. That's where we're going to camp this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As a church that is currently lacking a leader, and when I say that, I'm not putting down any of the leadership team who are clearly doing an outstanding job of holding the fort and trying to push you guys forward with vision. What I'm talking about is you are lacking an Ephesians 4.11 gift of a pastor to your church and not having a head honcho sometimes can rattle people a little bit can make people a little bit nervous and you might have questions like how are we carrying this weight how are we going to keep carrying this weight how long is this going to last is not having a leader going to impact our spiritual and numerical growth can we carry the vision forward will people leave and what about the next appointment is it going to be a long drawn out process is it going to be a stressful season being point leaderless can throw up a lot of questions, which some of you might be pondering on, some of you might not be bothered at all, but others of you will have levels of anxiety over. So this morning, I want to talk to us about peace. 
and how we can find it. And if you take a note, the message this morning is the pattern for peace. The original Greek word for peace is irene. It means to be at rest. It's a quietness. It's a giving over. It's blissfully relaxing. And the peace that Paul's speaking of here mentions that it surpasses all understanding. That means that this peace, this deep state, restful state, rises over us. It's, it's above the norm. It defies logic. It's superior. It's something that we could scarcely even begin to imagine. It's a peace not based on our circumstances or on our own understanding, but on God's promises to us. And when we trust Jesus, we can have this peace in the midst of any and every storm. And as I speak to you this morning, you can take this from a church context, you know, with with not having a leader, or just allow this to speak and minister into your own individual circumstances, into your own life. But we need to read the passage fully to really understand this often quoted verse, because just before Paul wrote it, he encourages the people to do something that might sound odd in light of the circumstances. Because he says, rejoice in the Lord. And not only on one occasion, he says, rejoice in the Lord all the time. Do it always. And, if, and he carries on. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In essence, he's saying, you don't need to think or worry about anything at all. All you need to do is ask God for what you need and be grateful and joyful in your faith and in your heart and in your mind. And the key here is that this peace comes as a a result of some of our actions. We have to do something to receive it. You know, many of the promises of God come with conditions attached to them. It's like, if, if you do your bit, God says, I'll do my bit. And this is what this is saying. So we have to rejoice to get this peace. We have to be gentle. We have to not worry. We have to pray about everything and be grateful for everything. Even when life is a stinker, even when life is throwing us curveballs, these are the things that we need to do. So we're just going to dig a bit deeper into these three little verses this morning. So the first one is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. To rejoice is a call to be joyful. Sometimes Jesus would walk into a room and immediately call people to joy instead of saying hello. Can you imagine that coming into church? Oh, good morning. Be joyful. Rejoice instead of saying hello. And Paul in this little book, Philippians, used the term joy 16 times in 104 voices, verses. Sorry, It's the most joyful book in the Bible. And yet he was the most unlikely candidate to be rejoicing. Because if you think your life is tough, you should try being the Apostle Paul for a day. He was going about and spreading the gospel, gospel, and people were doing all sorts of crazy stuff to him. He was beaten up. He was beaten with rods. He was whipped on numerous occasions. That had the potential to kill a man. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times, adrift out at sea all day and night. And on land, he was tracked down by bandits. He worked every hour under the sun, didn't have much sleep, experienced hunger and thirst, had been cold and naked, and the list goes on and on. And yet in all of that, he knew that Jesus, what Jesus had done for him, and he wanted others to have that as well. He was so blessed that God had chosen him to be the one to tell the others the good news. Paul was a joyful Christian, but given his circumstances, he shouldn't have been. And we're called to be like Paul. We're called to be the same. We're not called to live under our circumstances. We're called to live above them. 
Most of us at some point in our life have experienced really tough times. It's all a part of the rich tapestry of life. But in those times, we have to make a decision. We can choose to be joyful or we can choose to be joyless. We can choose to be delighted or we can choose to be downcast. We can choose to be merry or we can choose to be morose. And when we choose joy, despite our circumstances, we find not only ourselves blessed, but the people around us will be blessed. The people around us will look at us and think, how can that person be joyful in the light of their circumstances? But it's because we have Jesus inside of us. And you might be saying to me, well, you don't know my circumstances. How, how can I possibly rejoice when everything is all going so wrong? How can I rejoice when my partner has walked out on me? Or I've lost my job, or I've lost a limb, or I've been diagnosed with some kind of terminal illness. How do I rejoice when my child, my grown-up child, won't let me see my grandchild? Or I'm being bullied? How can we rejoice when we don't even have a minister right now? That Paul... He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have to live in our world. No, he doesn't. But thank the Lord that we didn't have to live in his, hey? And that's the thing. Paul totally gets it. He didn't pen these words from some plush office with a city view on his two-screen computer. He wrote these words from prison. He'd worked out that joy isn't dependent on our circumstances, but on whether or not we're in Jesus. Happiness comes from happenings. But joy comes from Jesus. And he's not asking us to rejoice in our circumstances or in our tragedy or to rejoice because someone's died or we've lost our job. No, he's saying rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the God who never changes, who's always forgiving, who always takes us home, who never turns his back on us. Because the closer we live to the Lord, the more we'll be able to rejoice in him even when things turn against us. No matter what is going on in our life, he is always good. He's good. He might allow some stuff and we might not never understand it. But God is good because the Bible says so. Joy is a choice. It's like forgiveness. It's a choice with huge benefits that can bring us closer to God's heart and his promises that are all good for us. Whenever something bad happens, we know that he always think works all things together for our good and that something even better is coming. Does that mean it won't be hard or it won't be sad? No, of course not. But it brings hope. It brings us hope. So we rejoice always. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. I want to read you a little story this morning. His name is Bill. He has wild hair, wears a t-shirt with holes in it, ripped jeans and no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for his entire four years of college. He's brilliant and super bright and he became a Christian during his studies. Across the street from the university is a well-dressed, very conservative church. They want to develop a ministry to the students, but they're not sure how to go about it. One day, Bill decides he's going to go to the church. He walks in with his no-shoes, ripped jeans, holy t-shirt and wild hair. The service has already started, but Bill starts down the aisles looking for a seat. The church is completely packed. There are no seats available. And by now, people are looking a bit uncomfortable, but no one dares say anything. And Bill's getting closer and closer to the front towards the pulpit. And when he realizes there are no seats, he just squats down right there on the carpet in front of the preacher. Although perfectly acceptable behavior in a college lecturer, trust me, this has never happened in a church before. And by now, the people are getting a bit uptight and the tension is thick in the air. About this time, the minister realizes that 
from way at the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way towards Bill. Now, the deacon is in his 80s, has silver-gray hair, a three-piece suit, and a pocket watch. A very godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very curtly. And he walks with a cane, and he starts walking towards this boy. But everyone is saying to themselves, well, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age and of his background to understand some college kid sat at the floor at the front? He takes a long time to reach the boy, and the church is utterly silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. And all eyes are focused on him. You can't hear, you can hear, you can't hear, even hear anyone breathing. And the people are thinking, the minister can't even preach the sermon until the deacon does what he has to do. And now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor. With great difficulty, he lowers himself down and sits next to Bill, and he worships alongside him so he won't be alone. Everyone chokes with emotion. There's not a dry eye in the entire congregation. And when the minister finally gains control, he says, what I am about to preach, you will never remember. But what you have just seen, you will never forget. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a Christ-like quality. It's gracious and patient and mild-mannered. It's composed, it's courteous, it's compassionate. It's respectful and considerate. And it's probably one of the most important character traits for those who say that they live by the Spirit. Our world today doesn't value gentleness. We're, we're loud, we're boisterous, we're rowdy and showy and obnoxious and pushy. We tend to categorize gentle people as wimps. But gentleness is actually the result of bringing great strength under control. In a biblical sense, the strongest people are those who dare to be gentle. And the best example to guide us is Jesus. To be gentle or meek is to be God-molded and Christ-shaped and Holy Spirit-directed. And the old deacon in the story is the epitome of the word gentleness. But what has this got to do with the pattern for finding peace? Well, to be gentle means showing love and care for others in the way that we act and the way that we speak. It's the Christian way to me to be. And I, I don't know about you, but when I know that I'm doing the things that I'm told to do in the Bible, it, it brings me closer to God. I feel at peace. I feel a oneness because I know I'm doing the right thing. And then Paul writes, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is defined as a state of uneasiness, apprehension, worry, intense fear, or dread that sometimes even lacks a, a specific cause. Anxiety is having thoughts and being anxious before something's even happened. And so God is saying here, please don't worry. Don't worry about anything. Stop worrying about the stuff that you can't do anything about. It is not God's will for us to be anxious. He said he wants to take all our burdens. He wants to carry anxiety and worry and concerns. And what he wants to do with them is trade them off for his peace. It's not a bad trade, to be fair. One of Satan's simplest tricks, the most effective strategies, is to draw our attention to things that we can't do anything about. There's nothing worse than a crisis that we can't fix. And if our hours are spent with thoughts of tomorrow's issues that we can't access today, and we know we can't touch with today's resources, we're just going to be doomed to worry. And it wears us out. Charles Spurgeon once said, anxiety doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it empties today of its strength. And this verse, it's commanding us not to be anxious about anything. And yet it's one of the verses that we really struggle to obey. We get so wrapped up in our circumstances that we just, we can't see the wood for the trees. And when we're in this place, 
we very rarely know God in these times. This verse is saying we need to stop. Just stop. Stop with the excessive anxiety. Stop with the worry. Stop seeing your circumstances as impossible and start trusting God. So let me put this together. If you are excessively concerned, if worry is keeping you up at night, if it's keeping you from your responsibilities during the day and just driving you crazy, see it for what it is and go to the next part of the pattern. Because it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, pray. If we want to follow the pattern towards peace, we have to pray. So take that time that you're spending fretting and get God involved. No matter how big or small your issues are, take it to him because he's bothered. Whatever bothers you or distracts you is big to God. And he wants us to hand it over. He wants us to give it to him. He doesn't want us to carry it. And prayer should always be our first response. And once we're praying about it, we can rest assured that God is working on it. It doesn't always look like it. It doesn't always feel like it. But feelings aren't facts. So we give it to God and we go to sleep. Because those who leave everything in God's hands will eventually see God's hands in everything. And our prayers might be awkward, they might be feeble, but the power of prayer isn't in the one who's speaking it. The power of prayer is in the one who hears it. God hears every prayer. He sees every tear. I want to tell you a modern, modern parable on prayer. A large ship was wrecked during a storm and only two men survived and they swam to a desert island. The two survivors looked around them and realized they had no recourse except to pray to God. To find out whose prayer was more powerful, they agreed to divide the territory between them and stay on opposite sides of the island. The first thing the first man prayed for was food. And lo and behold, the next morning, he came across a fruit-bearing tree on his side of the island and he was able to eat its fruit. The other man's piece of the lamb was barren. After a week, the first man decided he was a bit lonely and he thought he'd pray for a wife. The next day, another ship was wrecked and the only survivor was a woman who swam to his side of the island and on the other side of the island, there was nothing. Soon the first man prayed for a house and clothes and more food and the next day, by some miracle, all of these things were provided for him and the woman. But the second man received nothing. Finally, the first man prayed for a ship so that he and his wife could leave the island and return to civilization. And in the morning, a ship just happened to be anchored off his side of the island, and the crew were waving at him. The first man and his wife boarded the ship and decided to leave the second man on the island. They considered him unworthy to receive God's blessings because none of his prayers had been answered. As the ship began to leave, a voice boomed from heaven saying, Why are you leaving your companion on the island? Those blessings are mine alone, said the first man. I was the one who prayed for them. His prayers weren't answered, but mine were, so he doesn't deserve anything. And God said, you are completely mistaken. That other guy, your companion, he only had one prayer, and I answered it. And if it hadn't been for his prayer, you wouldn't have received any of the things that you did. He prayed that all your prayers would be answered. We need to pray. Because here's what happens when we don't. We'll have less and less desire for God. We'll feel far from him. The stress and anxiety and the crisis of confusion over our lives will rule our lives. There's no joy. Other things will start to fill the place of God and we'll experience an emptiness 
in our hearts, making wrong decisions and just getting easily deceived and defeated. And if you feel in any of these things, I encourage you to pray more. I need to pray more. The church needs to pray more. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian and a prayerless church is a powerless church. So we're going to pray every day, start every day with prayer, end every day with prayer. Whatever you're doing throughout your day, walking down the street, having a shower, just chat away to him. Just make it a a daily conversational thing. Because I don't think God does anything except in answer to prayer. In other words, if we don't ask, we don't get. That's biblical. The key to overcome and worry is to pray about everything and worry about nothing. And the verse continues, the fifth pattern for peace is to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, when is it easy to be the most thankful? When things are going good, right? You'd expect. Well, maybe, but that's not what these verses are challenging us on. We're called to give thanks even in the middle of our trials. Sometimes things in life are bad. We have seasons of mourning. We can be upset about so many things, but it's in these moments that God asks us to thank him anyway. And a defining characteristic of being a Christian is actually in the way that we respond to trials. I'm pretty positive that we all have days when thankfulness doesn't come easily. And I bet most of us could rattle off a whole list of things now that we're struggling with. So to say thank you is so hard. But I want us to take our cue from the author of these verses, a man who had every right to be bitter, but wasn't. Because when Paul wrote these, he was languishing in a harsh Roman prison. He was completely separated from his friends. He was unjustly accused, brutally treated. But instead of complaining, we read that his lips rang out with words of praise and thanksgiving, which Mark referenced earlier this morning. Wow, that was Paul in the midst of it all still praising his God. And from one end of the Bible to the other, we're commanded to be thankful. In fact, thankfulness is just a natural overflow of a heart that is tuned into God's. And so we come to the verse on peace, which reads, and having done all that, in other words, having rejoiced, having been gentle, not worried, prayed, and given thanks, it says, then the peace comes to guard our hearts and our minds. My title today, The Pattern for Peace, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. I've given you a formula from the word which should give you peace, but I don't think it's literal. If we're looking for a clue or a pattern or a formula, all that will really do is move us away from relationship. The word of God is about knowing God and trusting God. And when we turn to formulas, they can kind of turn us away from the person and cause us just to rely on a series of steps. And when we take those steps and those steps don't work... We start to doubt God and his word. We blame him for not coming through. What we really need to do to find peace is to seek him. King of kings, Lord of lords, prince of peace. And hidden in all our verses this morning, of all these things we need to do to find peace, we read this. Four little words. The Lord is near. And those words, those four words to change everything. Because it's not actually about how much we rejoice or how gentle we are or what we pray or how much thanks we put into our prayers. It's about relationship and believing that God is near and that he always comes close to us in the midst of the stuff that we're going through. It's knowing that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. It's knowing he's the God who never leaves us, never abandons us. Knowing that he's for us and that he's a provider. 
Because if there's no God, then there is no peace. But if we know God, we can know peace. None of us wants to be alone when things are going wrong, when times are tough. We want the presence of other people in our lives, in our trials with us. We want them to listen. We want them to encourage. We want them to love because it can help reduce our fears. But how much more when we're struggling should we want God in our lives? We don't want a set of steps to help us. We want him to help us. And having him is the only way to truly experience what we heard at the beginning, that peace that surpasses all understanding. Gaining peace is all about his presence and provision in our lives. He gives us what we need exactly when we need it. He's never early, but the word says he's never late. It feels like he is all the time. But if he said it, he means it, and I believe it. Doesn't mean he's left us. A delay is not a denial. Doesn't mean he won't provide. He just wants us to press into him and find him in the midst of the things that we're going through. He wants us to trust him. So we have a pattern for peace. We have some steps to take to achieve that peace. But if we just do the steps without looking to the step maker, nothing will change. And we can use the pattern, but we do it with God, knowing he is in us, he's around us, he's behind us, he's hemming us in, he's for us. And we do it expectantly, believe in his word, so that the Prince of Peace becomes our peace in ways that we could never think, dream or imagine. So I charge you, RBC, to determine to be at churches corporately as a church, to be at peace and individually to press into Jesus like never before. Make him and your relationship with him your top priority. Keep loving him, keep loving one another and I promise you, you will lead people to Jesus in your congregation. Amen. Amen. Thank you.